Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and today's episode is looking on the bright side of the dark side. Now, of course, we're referring to the dark side group tied to the recent and highly publicized colonial pipeline breach. But rather than repeat all the details and conjecture about IOCs and how many C2 servers might have been involved, etc., those things are in our blogs and a bunch of others, we're going to be taking the discussion up a level to understand the current state of ransomware, ransomware as a service, and why we're seeing so much damage that even the criminals behind these attacks did not plan. So to help us do that, we've invited two guests who've been working closely with some of the related areas that we want to dive into. And first, we have Craig Sanderson, who's the VP of Product Management for the security team at Infoblox. Thank you for joining us, Craig. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. And we also have Krupa Srivastan, who is the Director of Product Marketing at Infoblox and our local expert on cyber insurance and other breach response strategies. Welcome, Krupa. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. So to start out, I really wanted to get your thoughts on why ransomware is having so many of these unintended consequences. So, Craig, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think this comes back to really the industrialization of hacking that's happened over the last probably five to 10 years probably now. So in the past, it used to be the, the guys who actually were smart enough to actually build the ransomware tools, they would be the ones who would use the execution. That isn't the case anymore. And this industrialization of hackers meant that a lot of the people who are actually doing the actual attack themselves aren't particularly sophisticated. So as they said themselves, they're only in it for the money. They don't understand the technology. They don't understand the impact. And so what you're going to start to see is a lot more of these unintended consequences because the folks who are actually executing it just don't have the background. And that, frankly, they don't really care. So I think this is a trend that's going to probably continue. And, you know, it just so happens in this case, so you, these guys went fishing for some fish and end up with a big whale, much more than they were uh, anticipating. Yeah, got to be careful what you're going to hook out there. Krupa, yeah. any thoughts? Yeah, I think we can take a step back and 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 see why ransomware as a service is such a big business, right? Um, just like any SaaS business, which we are all in, uh, you know, uh, people who want to use ransomware, they want to reduce investment. The customer, they are the customers, quote unquote, right? So mm-hmm. they want to reduce investment. They want to run the latest software and they want to get good support. So they go to companies that offer ransomware as a service, right? Um, so it's a, it's a big business and um, your quote unquote, your partner or your vendor builds the ransomware for you, hosts, hosts it in the cloud and then gives you easy an easy way to use it, right? A deployable mm-hmm. tool set. So um, it's, and it's not something new. Um, I think you mentioned this, Bob, um, in, in some of our conversations. It's not a new uh, kind of attack, right? It's been around for a while. And the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack was just one of the uh, attacks that made headlines last week. Since then, there's been news articles about um, Toshiba saying its European unit has been hacked, uh, also blamed on the dark side. Um, and then Ireland's health service was also hit by ransomware attack last week. So it is one of those um, very, very easy to use attacks um, that, that the bad actors leverage. And when it comes to consequences, back to your question about unintended consequences, you know, it's it's their main goal. Any any person who wants to use ransomware, their main goal is to disrupt business, right? So I don't buy this that it's unintended consequences. You wanted to disrupt the business, that's why you launched it, right? So yeah. now the 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 amount of the uh, the severity of the consequences depends on what type of business gets hit, right? In this particular, if it's a healthcare business, you could lose a life, right? Um, if it's a pipeline. 
then you see long lines at gas stations. So yeah. it just depends on what business gets hit. But um, they know that they're going to disrupt business when they launch these attacks. And you both kind of mentioned something about, you know, the fact that the attackers are, you know, even even the ones who really are highly sophisticated and they're, you know, they're engineers and, you know, they could probably be making a fortune in a legitimate business, but they've chosen to do it this way. They don't understand the businesses. They don't understand actually how the victim works. Their expertise is how do I breach? How do I get past defenses and conduct my attack? And they can't they don't even realize the 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 repercussions. But to the point you both made, because of things like ransomware service, this is kind of like the new script kitty, you know, where instead of downloading snippets of code, piecing them together, compiling it, and wow, I have a new virus. Now they don't even have to have that much technical knowledge. They just need to know the right websites because Darkseid didn't just provide the content. Um, they had, oh, here's how you can get it delivered. Here's services that will deliver the phishing. They had um, money laundering capabilities because I know um, BitMix was the service that they were using to launder the money through. Uh, that's uh, last I saw that went down too recently in addition to them. So yeah, we, you're right. We've got a, a lot of, unknowledgeable people conducting these attacks and they don't think it through. Um, but I did want to cover um, before Darkseid disappeared, they issued an apology for causing all of this damage. And they were the ones who said, you know, hey, we didn't really mean to disrupt a whole lot of people. We just wanted our money. Um, any thoughts on that? Why, why would they issue an apology? I think for, for these guys, going back to like what we said before, it's really about them making money. I mean, they have no interest. I mean, even in the statement that came out, they said they have no particular geopolitical uh, agenda they're trying to pursue. They're, they just really wanted to, to make the money. And this has obviously caused, it's kind of blown up the fact that the, the federal government's got involved. The fact there's been so much media involvement in what's going on. Mm -hmm. These guys, there's a lot more heat. These guys would like to do their business under the covers. They don't necessarily want to be out there in the limelight. And of course, obviously, when, when they do get in the limelight, start, people start to uh, take an interest in their assets and their infrastructure. And that's a risk to their ongoing business. They'd like to do the business quietly. I think what's probably likely to happen is that these guys are going to lay low. They're going to try and like keep out, keep out the limelight, at least uh, for the foreseeable future. But I don't see there's a change in dynamic. I mean, this isn't going to go away because suddenly this has blown up. Uh, like most criminals are going to probably try and lay low and then come back later. And it's interesting that even the Revel Group, who are uh, kind of uh, an affiliate of, of Darkseid, they've even made statements around, you know, being specific over which organizations and industries you can go after because of oh, the yeah. impact of uh, kind of getting the federal government and getting other folks involved when you're targeting like sensitive industries. So I think that there may be a, like, it might be curtailed for a while, but given the fact that this is somewhat of a bit of a free for all, making sure that you can actually control where the ransomware goes, who gets affected. People don't understand the supply chains. They don't understand who they're potentially infecting. They don't really and have that level of targeted control. And so yeah. unintended consequences could still happen when you have, when you see uh, these lower level criminals trying to execute more sophisticated ransomware campaigns is what we're, we're starting to see. Well, let's take, uh, take this a little bit further. Um, Krupa, you were saying that, of course, you know, with something like ransomware as a service, anybody can launch these kinds of attacks. So um, it wasn't like ransomware was uh, was a minor thing beforehand. I mean, it's for the last few years, it's been one of the primary challenges that we've all faced. And ransomware as a service just makes that uh, you know more permanent. That's that's not going to go away, as uh, Craig just said. So, 
what kinds of things um, should people be looking at in order to block these attacks? What, how can we understand ransomware to know where can we block an attack? Um, and by the way, don't jump ahead to the respond. We're going to dig, dig into that a little bit later. Right now, just to prevent yourself um, from becoming a victim, what are some of the things that we can do? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, obviously user education is key. Um, I know a lot of companies do periodic and regular um, security training for their employees, cybersecurity training, right? So I can't stress enough the importance of continuing to do that, not just for ransomware type attacks, but, you know, phishing, exploits, whatever it is, right? Um, any yep. type of attack. Data breaches are equally, um, you know, um, equally harmful. Right to the brand and 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 um, et cetera. So I think user education training for the employees is key. Obviously, keeping up to date with patches, uh, things like that. In in this particular case for ransomware, I think making sure you have robust backup systems and, and backup plans, back, backing up your data, um, you know, storing data offsite, things like that, and off the network. I think is a good way to make sure you're able to recover. Your data. Oh, I said no recovery. No recovery. Okay. <laughs> just stop. We'll talk about recovery next. Yeah. And, and I think the, uh, I think just regular and good network hygiene, right? Uh, making sure environment is, uh, you, you're following the best practices for uh, architecting your environment, um, you know, especially in this, in this day and age of hybrid work and hybrid workplace and SaaS applications, things like that. Your networks are really complicated, so you got to make sure you follow proper hygiene. Okay, I mean, great. Any just, thoughts? Yeah, just to add to that, I think also it highlights the, the value of high-quality threat intelligence because, I mean, you've got threat intel community out there. They're constantly tracking a lot of the, the ransomware infrastructures out there, uh, not only the threat actors, but also the infrastructure that those campaigns typically use. So, you know, they won't always save you in every every case. If it's a targeted attack, then, uh, then that's obviously a different story. But in a lot of the cases, since the fact this is industrialized, one of your best options is to leverage high-quality threat intel because quite often if the user education fails, the user clicks on that phishing link, then after that you're relying on threat intelligence to identify that connection to the uh, uh, to the malicious site that allow the additional malware activity to happen. So, I mean, it's, it's key to making sure that you've got that visibility, but you need to make sure you have the, the right necessary staff to be able to make sure you can respond. So when you start to see those early indications, those canaries in the coal mine, as it were, is that you can actually try and do something about it. Unfortunately, one of the challenges is for most organizations, we're, we're lacking the number of experienced operations staff to be able to process and evaluate those, those incidents or those events, I should say. And unfortunately, as a result of that is some of these things that you know could have been picked up earlier along aren't picked up because simply the folks haven't had the time to, to do the necessary investigation. But threat intelligence is probably one of your best elements in terms of be able to get that early view of what might be going on rather than waiting for the, the ransomware to, to kick off and then trying to do the remediation. Yeah. And just to add to the Craig's point, right, this, uh, this dark side, you know, it's not a new ransomware that was detected last week. It's, I think it was last year when um, it was first uh, noted that such a, you know, ransomware exists. Yeah, so, they, sent a, um, they sent out a press release in August last year announcing themselves and they were ready for business. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. And since last year, they have been successful in, in getting at least nine million in Bitcoin ransom payments over, over the past nine months. Right. So yeah. um, back to Craig's point about threat intel, um, one of the 
easiest places to use threat intel is in your DNS infrastructure, right? Um, I mean, uh, even ransomware, most malware, right? Um, one of the first points of connection it does is through uh, is do a DNS lookup to a CNC server, right? To download the encryption algorithms and to encrypt the data. Or just the so, phishing email, the phishing email with the link. Email. That's a DNS lookup as well. Exactly, exactly. So when you leverage the threat intel uh, with your DNS, you can actually block those initial, um, you know, DNS requests to websites that are hosting ransomware, but also the mm-hmm. ransomware CNC callback can be detected and blocked as well. So you're minimizing the not only the initial infection, but also the chances of initial infection, but you're also minimizing uh, further damage in terms of encryption of the data. Yeah, and and I think uh, we were just touching on something important that is kind of a bright side to all this is that a, a ransomware attack, it it's not like you get the phishing email, you click on it, and oh, darn, we're done for. There's a lot that happens. It has to call back and communicate because a lot of them have those those validations that happen early on, like DarkSeid. If it was on a system, it checked and said, oh, this is a Russian OS. Uh, you know, or the default language is Russian, they wouldn't int- uh, attack any further. They they stop. Um, they would send some of this information back so the attackers knew, okay, well, we'll keep looking for somebody else. There's a lot of communication going on. And Krupa, you mentioned the, the encryption key. If they're going to give you a key, it means that either it was generated on site or generated by them, but somewhere there was a communication saying, oh, here's the key to use to do the encryption. The encryption takes a long time and there's all these status checks going back to the attacker saying, hey, um, you know, it's been slow. I'm only getting so much done. Okay, well then don't don't uh, send the ransom note yet. You know, there's just all these communications to help them detect, if not the initial attack, to detect the activity. And a lot of that, like you said, Krupa, that's, you know, C2 communications, that all uses DNS. So anything you can do, you know, email, web, and DNS security all play a role early on in, in this. But I wanted to, to move on, and, and Krupa, you started to go there, so we'll start with you. So how do we prepare uh, to be able to respond to this kind of an attack? How do we respond to ransomware? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, even before the response, you should be prepared right, for, for being breached by a ransomware. Um, and, and like I said earlier, you know, making sure you have robust backup processes for, especially for your critical data um, and for sensitive data, uh, you know, you wanna make sure that you have robust backup processes for that. Um, you know, maybe store data offsite off the network, right? Um, things like that can definitely, uh, you know, even if you're in your breach, you, the repercussions could be less when you have your data backed up, right? So that's one thing. The yeah, other you mentioned thing- the offsite, and I thought that was an important point because I remember early on, like about a decade ago, when ransomware was really taking off, there was a lot of companies that said, oh, we went to do our backups, but we actually had this massive server that everybody backed up their endpoints to. And that was the only place those backups were. And it had been encrypted too. So mm-hmm. having your backups online isn't really going to help much. Exactly, exactly. And then the other thing that uh, companies have started doing is to hedge their bets by taking cyber insurance. And I know this was one of the topics uh, that is coming up very re- more recently, more often. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, the companies who don't have the capital uh, backing or, you know, the capital, uh, the large capital to recover from ransomware, they tend to go um, with uh, purchasing cyber insurance and, and ransomware is one of the top um, top uh, 
types of insurance that uh, that companies get. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, again, the insurance companies, it depends on whether they will pay or not, depends on, you know, whether the company that they're insuring has capability to recover from that ransomware. Um, and so there are a lot of things that go on into the decision-making process of whether the insurance company will pay the ransom or what, but at least the the exposure for that business can be uh, reduced and minimized when they take cyber insurance. Well, they do. Uh, the, I think they said that on an average day, the pipeline did 3 million barrels of fuel. 3 million barrels generates a lot less than the 5 million ransom or I mean, a lot more than the five million ransom they had to pay. So they really did, you know, save a lot of money by paying the ransom in a way. Um, cyber insurance, though, I understand not all cyber insurance does it. That sometimes you actually have to buy that as a separate like add-on uh, for you know dealing with ransomware. Um, they provide consultants and they have a lot of services too. Insurance companies provide a lot of services uh, to help you get through this. Um, it's not many companies, you know, uh, Craig, you were talking about the uh, shortage of personnel. I wonder how many companies have an on-hand, uh, you know, ransom negotiator, you know, built into their staff. I, I doubt they have that. They, they don't. But I mean, it's one of those things where I mean, not that you have to do everything yourself, but you do have to have contingency plans. I mean, as part of mm-hmm. any good like, security policy and process, I mean, you have to understand that risk and be ready to mitigate that risk. And that requires action plans because I just don't think it's not going to happen to you because, you know, I'm pretty sure Colonial Pipeline wouldn't have imagined it would happen to them. So having a plan in terms of working out who's going to do what, having an instant response plan, that also includes pulling or having the ability to pull the necessary data to be able to understand the scope and the severity of the breach. I mean, I think what happens to, to most organizations, it's not so much that, that they actually get breached, it's the fact that when it actually all happens, they're not really in a situation to understand what is going on. And it kind of kind of leaves the impression that they're not really in control of their security policy. So having, for example, uh, the DNS queries and the DHCP lease information to be able to identify what devices have been infected, you know, where they've been going to. I mean, all those things which are simple things you can do, it's data that's, that's available to you. You just have to put it as part of a coordinated plan. And especially if you're lacking the, the resources, it's even more important that you have a plan and a process that the folks in your security operations team can follow so that when the worst does happen, you can respond in a coordinated fashion where where so many organizations struggle is that when they get exposed, it's not just the fact they get breached, it's, it also exposes they don't really have contingency plans and backup plans to be able to deal with these sorts of situations. And frankly, given how often ransomware is happening these days, if you don't have a plan for a ransomware incident, then you're really probably not doing your necessary due diligence. Yeah, and I, I uh, was really mostly impressed, although, of course, the details may make prove me, uh, um, you know, uh, a broken fan. But at this point, it looks like they responded pretty quick by shutting down their system. I mean, it's like they said, yeah, we had the breach and we shut down the system. And all indications are that they did that pretty quick. Um, that even though in OT systems, they typically separate them, they're isolated. The OT system is in one on one network and the rest of their business, which is where supposedly um, they were first breached, is on another network. So they had this isolation in place, but they still made a pretty quick decision. And I'd like to know the process that they used to get that to shut down a pipeline that moves 3 million barrels of fuel a day. That's not something that you just let, you know, a frontline manager make that call. Right. I mean, it actually raised a really good point. I mean, the fact that they had to potentially did have separate networks. I mean, with IoT, 
you're going to get more and more interconnected devices of critical assets that are now going to be exposed. So digital transformation is great. So the organization do more things, they make more money, they can uh, take more opportunities. But the downside of that is they don't always understand the impact of the risk of, of doing this. Now, not to say that you shouldn't do it, you should. Yeah. But you need to counter that or at least consider that as part of your impact assessment as you start to roll out new services of what the potential impact was of things like ransomware and other threats. And unfortunately, organizations are so focused on obviously driving the digital transformation, security sometimes gets left by the wayside. And then the result of that is when something like this happens, people aren't clear on what the policy and process is. They aren't clear what systems are connected. And you know, as we connect more and more devices, more of our critical assets to the network, then the impact is going to just get greater and greater. And, and one of the things that we've tried to do, at least on the DNS side, is because DNS is pretty much ubiquitous, we can get a lot of visibility of what devices are connected. Quite often we find customers are somewhat unpleasantly surprised that a device they wouldn't have thought was connected has somehow managed to find its way connected to that network. And normally they only find out when something bad happens and that's the worst time to be finding out that you've got these critical assets connected to what is essentially an exposed network. So I think the IoT impact and the, obviously the transition to cloud, you know, customers' traditional approach to securing things of like, building a perimeter obviously isn't going to work anymore. Having that visibility is going to be critical and knowing what is connected to what, who's doing what, where, and when. Having that available and kind of codified into a policy and a process, that's going to make sure, that's going to probably be the difference between successfully mitigating the risk or at least reducing the impact or being badly exposed and finding yourself in a situation where you have to take such drastic actions of actually shutting down the entire pipeline, like in this case. Yeah, yeah no, there, there's actually something we've all three said that I'm connecting here in my head. You were talking about OT and IoT systems, which are different. Um, Krupp had been talking and I had been talking earlier about, you know, uh, web security, email security and DNS security. But OT systems, those don't run on Windows. Those don't even run on Linux. A lot of them have proprietary systems and so your web and your email scanning may not even be a valid way to catch a lot of this. It's like DNS is the bottom line common denominator amongst all those different platforms that might all be involved into an attack. So that was a, that was something that just occurred to me. Krupa, you had a thought there, though. Yeah, I just wanted to add to Craig's point about visibility. So uh, we recently did a, a focus group. Uh, with security practitioners, not even practitioners, just decision makers, right? Uh, CISOs and maybe one or two levels down and all of them. And these are like uh, maybe we did three focus groups. Each focus group had three uh, decision makers. All of them said they need better visibility. It's not that they don't have visibility today. They need more of it, right? Especially when you think about OT and IoT environments like uh, Craig and Bob, you both we mentioned, it's not standard devices that are connecting to the network, right? These are non-standard devices running, non-standard protocols. You can't always rely on endpoint security to secure these um, systems. And then you don't, uh, and have the time, um, as Craig mentioned, you don't even know what's connecting. So yeah. vis visibility is one of those things that's front and center for a lot of security decision makers, and uh, they just need more of it. Yeah, they may have plenty of visibility in certain areas, but there's blind spots. They're starting to realize that because um, uh, I was watching the recordings of some of those. And I also noticed that they would often pair the visibility with automation, which kind of goes to a point Craig mentioned earlier. They're so short on people that, you know, the, the really smart people that can make those tough decisions when they have to dig through, you know, the vague data, the, the areas where the visibility is not so crisp. 
they'd like to hand over automation to those areas where they have all the information available and it could be pretty much automated, you know, certain steps of the investigation or even automated response like source solutions, which Krupa, you mentioned earlier. So yeah, visibility and automation, those are a number of, number of things. Now, I wanted to um, uh, also kind of dig more though into this um, idea of, of cyber insurance, mainly because well, you know, everybody thinks of cyber insurance that, okay, we got breach, it's going to cost us so much. The insurance company says send out uh, or pay for a free subscription for all your customers to get their credit reviewed. And here's to pay for the consultants you had to hire and now you're back to business. But cyber insurance, particularly when it comes to ransomware, is, is providing a lot more services in this area. Um, and we didn't hear about it in Colonial's case, but there's been a lot of articles about cyber insurance lately but cyber insurance costs money. So that's the, the next question. Yeah, paying in Colonial's case, paying five million when you're losing the revenue from uh, uh, three million barrels of fuel a day, that makes financial sense. But why would it make financial sense to the cyber insurance company? Mm-hmm. You know, they must have been charging pretty high premiums to have a five million dollar policy in place. So how are those premiums detected for anybody who's thinking, hey, cyber insurance, I had to look into like, you know, they recommend it on the podcast. Um, how is that insurance premium going to be uh, calculated? Yeah, we, uh, off late, I've been digging a lot into, into this topic, um, as you guys know. And the way that insurance companies are assessing business has definitely become more complicated in the recent years, right? Initially, they would have like a questionnaire. Let's say five, 10 years ago, they had a questionnaire Um with five questions, right? Now they have 10 to 15 pages of questions yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, you know, that the company needs to fill out before, you know, they even qualify to get some sort of insurance. So, and they do audits too. I mean, like, you know, for certain policies over a certain level, they require an audit, don't they? Exactly. There's an audit involved sometimes. So it's, it's, it's gotten more complicated for sure um, over the years. And the other thing that insurance companies do is also leverage third-party security scoring right, as one way to measure risk. Um, and, um, you know, the way that these third-party security scoring companies uh, score um, is by looking at, um, you know, from the outside, what do their, uh, are there any vulnerabilities or, you know, from their vantage point or visibility point is from the outside. So you can't really guess about, you can't really uh, assess risk from malicious insiders, but you can definitely assess risk uh, from an outside perspective, uh, looking at a company's networks, right? So they use several different kind of uh, protocol-based, uh, you know, assessment, things like that. And, um, you know, they also have a, insurance companies have like a minimum requirements approach to decide who to insure and who not to insure. And if a company has a high security score, it means that it's like your credit card, credit score. So it means that you mm-hmm. are, less likely to be breached if you're in the top advanced tier, um, which means that, you know, less likely to be breached means, you know, less likely that the insurance company has to pay out. So then your the fees go down, right, for, for that company with a high security score. Um, and so there are many technologies you can uh, deploy to make sure not just to make sure that your security posture is robust, 
but also to make sure that your security score is high, right? Um, for us, one particular customer of ours uh, deployed DNS security and their score went from like an intermediate level to the advanced level. No other technology was deployed after that. But DNS security is like we you talked about, Bob, earlier. It's that foundational security that can really improve a company's security um, posture and hence a security score. So this particular company was able to reduce their cyber insurance fees um, just because of deploying uh, DNS security. Now, I'm not saying DNS security is the only solution mm-hmm. to improve security posture, but it's one one technology that helps. Oh, cool. Yeah, because I, I know that on my you know personal insurance, um, you know, it takes a combination of things. You know, you have your multi-car discounts. You have, oh, we also have our homeowners. And you start getting all these different things. They add up to very significant savings in, in uh, your insurance premiums. So, all right. But unfortunately, as usual, we are running out of time before we're running out of things to talk about. Um, Craig, uh, Krupa, I, I just want to thank you both for joining us today. And also to all of you uh, viewers and listeners, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, Join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.